Welcome to BC's Corner, episode 13. Thank you all for listening. I haven't said thank you in a while, and I just want to take a moment to say that. We have had some pretty extraordinary guests on this show, and that has been possible because so many of you have listened, you joined the conversation, and it means so much to me when you take the extra step of not just sharing it with a friend, but letting me know that you listen in the first place. When you rate, when you leave a review, when you message me on Instagram, it truly lights me up. So thank you all for your support. And I'm ready to dive into today's conversation. I love having conversations centered on political alignment. In other words, would be described as how we interact with the institutions of power in our world. Now, this conversation It's not exclusive to partisan politics, but it also includes the politics of media and entertainment, corporate influence, and social responsibility. These conversations are no stranger to this podcast, uh, but also they are no stranger to today's guest. Connor Moore, he's many things, a fitness professional, social and political commentator, creative director, and co-founder of Soulfire Productions, a premier podcast network for thought leaders and free thinkers and visionaries. But he's also the creator and host of his own show, The Politically Homeless Podcast, which has now evolved into Connor Wanders. His authentic takes, his sharp wit and fearless attitude has garnered him thousands of views and listeners from across the world. And I'm just gonna say it, we are so lucky to have him on BC's Corner. BC's Corner, this show, uh, is independent, but Connor being who he is to me was very instrumental in the show coming to life. And for that, I am extremely grateful, grateful for his example, but also for being truly one of my favorite people to talk to. He and his beautiful wife, Kelly, have been on their own journey as they are new parents to a beautiful baby girl, Robbie Mae. She is four months old and so, so beautiful. And in this conversation with Connor, we get to discuss his journey as a father, his political alignment. We talk through his experience interacting with queer culture and his own takes on the gay agenda, as well as discussing Hollywood diversity. We have black mermaids and hey, there are even some black elves that moved into, and we discuss it all. Without further ado, y'all, Let's dive in with Connor Moore. Okay, so you know you're one of my favorite people to talk to, right? <laughs> that means a lot. <laughs> I mean, I mean, you are. And uh, the way we met, because everyone's going to wonder, how did I meet this man? I was doing work at Simply B. It was actually like my first or second month. And one of the first things I did is I upgraded the podcast equipment. You'll notice I don't have that same podcast equipment because I don't have that same budget. but. I upgraded that podcast equipment, and it was by recommendation of you, co-founder of Soulfire Productions and a great podcaster in your own right, as I've mentioned in the intro. Uh, and I was having trouble with like one of the XLRs and the, and the Shore mic and all of that different stuff. And I got on a call with this random guy, Connor, who was like, oh, I'll jump in and help this dude. And instead of actually fixing the equipment, I think we spent like five minutes working on equipment. And then you found out, because I shared my screen, I had that I listened to Ben Shapiro on there. Not because I like Ben Shapiro, but because I like to know what goes on in conservative spaces. And then we ended up just shooting the shit about politics for probably like the next 50 minutes, probably the most inappropriate use of work time I've ever had, except for that time I I took an extra lunch. But it was (laughs) such a great time to get to know you. And I was intrigued by like your political alignment your principles. And you seem to be more of a principled individual than a partisan one, Uh, not a hack, as some people would define it, who just goes with the crowd. And so I want to dive into all of that. But you've had some life changes recently. You welcomed a beautiful baby girl with your wife, Kelly, beautiful family overall. And I'm curious of how this journey of fatherhood has evolved you, has changed you. You've expressed some of that on your show, but I'd love for you to share a bit of it of how it's changed you. It definitely softened me a lot, you know, and I was, 
I kind of have like a hard exterior and I look very, um, I look very, if you're just listening to the audio, I look very masculine. I, you're you a teddy bear. That. You're a teddy I bear. <laughs> I can't be, I can be, but I, <laughs> you know, I really wanted to have a girl for some reason. Ke- Kelly wanted a boy. I wanted a girl. I mean, we were happy with it. It wasn't, we did IVF. So there's so few surprises right. and we were like, just pick the healthiest embryo and we'll just, you know, whatever we do, the next baby we want to have, whatever the, uh, this one. So we, we have a girl, we're going to have a boy next. If we have a boy, we'll have a girl next. But the actual birth itself was a big shift because Kelly almost died. Like things were really crazy. It was like a, a whole month of just like thinking she was in labor and not be, it was just exhausting. So when it finally happened, we're like, okay, everything's, you know, it happened. We're finally here. It's just kind of a relief. And then there was a big hemorrhage and she had to be rushed off the OR and it was just really scary, you know? So I went from like cloud nine to, oh my God, am I going to have to raise this baby by myself? You know, right. which I didn't know. And I was not prepared for that at all. Um, and then it just, I don't know, it doesn't, Three little over three months old, and it feels like she's like I don't even remember life before Roe. Like I just don't even know. Mm. Like it's it's so strange to me, and it doesn't for me. And I know I don't know if it's like this for a lot of men. I'm, I can't speak to anybody else's experience, but it what it's not like it's hard because sometimes you lose sleep or you have less time. But hey, just kind of do it. You just go into it, and it's like here we are. And I just, I don't know. I've tried to be super present with her and I don't have to try that hard. You know, it's just, it's like, I, she's going to be, she's going to LA. Kelly's going to see all of her girlfriends, like her little sisterhood circle and taking yeah. row with her. And I'm like, I don't get to see her for three days. Like, you know, <laughs> you would think like, Oh yeah, I get to be free for three days. I don't, I don't, I'm like, this is weird for me. I just, I love that. I, I, I even, it, it kind of changed my perspective of the word. Like I've always thought the word love was kind of clunky and I was reading about Greek mythology recently and they had different words for Familial love, like brotherly love, yeah, uh, uh, agape, uh, romantic love. love, yeah, yeah. It was like the the English language. I've always thought, based on my psychedelic experiences, I kind of had this revelation where I'm like, this language is just clunky. Like it just doesn't do a good job of explaining complex things. And uh, we really have to try hard. Where I was like, love doesn't really describe it. It's just like this soul bond with this little person that's changing every day. And it, I don't, I don't know, man, it's just, it, it changed how I wanted to show up in my own life because I'd gotten in the politics stuff, you know, doing that for a couple of years. And I kind of went into that just loaded up with resentment because my life had kind of been taken away from me. And it was like, it wasn't the first time something like that had happened, like outside of my control that kind of upended my life. But when the COVID kind of um, response, COVID itself didn't do anything, but like the COVID response really wrecked my business and at the same time, like Bernie Sanders had been had been screwed over yet again by the DNC. And I was yeah. just so bitter and frustrated. And I just took that energy into politically homeless, which did well for a while when everybody was feeling that way. But I just reached a point where I was like, I just don't want to be like this around my kid. You know, like I just don't want to be that guy. And that's also just not who I am. I'm a pretty jovial dude. I mean, I'm kind of a dick, but like in a fun way, I, I think sometimes, um, <laughs> depending on who I'm talking to. Yeah. So it's just like, it changed how I wanted to show up in my day to day, you know, and even with my like level of fitness and what I wanted to do and what I wanted to learn, like these things, all these little things just kind of like, it wasn't a conscious shift. It just kind of, you know, it just happened. Yeah. It just happened. I had a similar, because on my Instagram, I used to be very much politically engaged in that I would very like, I would put my commentary out there publicly and I would share my thoughts publicly and we would have discussions on it. And I would have discussions with other people But then I discovered that it was actually draining my energy and it was making me a bit resentful, not resentful necessarily of people or of life, but of the process of politics and of partisanship and how it changes people where no one has their brain once a party has a certain agenda or a certain list of talking points. And that really turned me away from wanting to talk politics. And I very similarly... I'm a very fun, jovial, (laughs) happy person, and I wanted to present that. So even when starting my own show, it was the question of, oh, Brian, are you going to cover politics? And I'm like, you know, I think CNN, Fox, MSNBC, and a bunch of independent folks out there that I love, like Breaking Points, like they're all like out there doing that day to day. And I feel like they have the countenance to do that. I'm like, I just want to explore things that I'm curious about. We have a, a shared principle in that I do believe, like you do, that pure curiosity breeds diversity and it allows you to explore the other parts of yourself that you maybe didn't know existed at a certain period of time. I mean, hey, that's how I got through college. Uh, yeah. But you had politically homeless for a time, a vibrant, growing community, and you would give in depth commentary, you would give in depth analysis. It looked amazing. And then you shifted back to Connor Wanders, really aiming to be grounded uh, in your foundational principles. 
and yes, talk about relevant topics uh, in the culture, but to the end of continued development and forward momentum. And there's also a a bit of irreverence to you that I've noticed or a bit of political (laughs) incorrectness because you mentioned there, you know, being a Bernie Sanders in a way supporter, I've always called you in my head like a progressive libertarian, uh, but yeah. someone would look at your bio. I sent your profile to one of my, my friends. She looked at it and she saw that your pronouns were dude bro and she rolled her eyes, like the biggest eye roll. And she was like, who is this guy? Like, is he some conservative guy? How have you dealt with kind of the perception of your political alignment versus the reality? Well, I'm just, I don't have a lot of insecurity in it. Like, I think if you get defensive about stuff, that's just a sense of insecurity. I'm like, listen, man, I... Even with, like, I think the BLM stuff got like way out of hand, like way out of hand. I mean, when people are burning down businesses and they're calling it mostly mostly peaceful, like you can say I'm a conservative for thinking that. I'm like, that got out of control. And I was also on the side of like the people that were like, you know, looting Nike stores weren't really doing that as a political activist. (laughs) They were just taking advantage of chaos. So I was, again, it was like a very nuanced view of like all of this stuff. But it's, I was talking about the way that the kind of doubt and trodden communities, white, black, Mexican, whatever, like just going through in the United States, get, get manhandled and mistreated by the police. I've been talking about that since I was a kid. My dad is a, was, was in prison for seven years as a product of that same environment. You know, he's not a black dude, but like non drug crimes. No, no, <laughs> <laughs> but it's like, I'm having fun so, today, guys. I just had experience with that. And I was like, so I have like a lived experience in that. And I was, I was passionate about it before it was cool, before you were posting black squares, before all this stuff. And then I get called racist. And I was like, this is just patently false. Like this is not even the same thing with like the dude bro pronouns. It's like, I owned a gym right across the street from university of Texas. And I flew a rainbow Texas flag in my gym. I had a handful of flags and that was one of them. And I had, I would took pride in the fact that I had closeted gay kids that were in fraternities that felt safe to be themselves in my gym. I took pride in that. Like I had guys coming in, like the one thing that I loved about the gay culture in Austin is like, they just run in groups. Like it's like, a, you get, it's, it's great, great for marketing. Cause they just like, it's a whole squad and they'd have guys come in that were from out of town. They thought they couldn't tell if I was straight or gay. And I always thought that was funny. Like it was real. I just, and I just, I like took pride in that. And they were like, I would like flirt with them. And it was, fu- I had fun with that. You know what I mean? It's always like, when you, I get called homophobic, I'm like, you're just, that's silly. Like I was, I was standing up for this stuff before it became a trend, you know? So to me, I'm just not insecure in these beliefs. And even when people call me a conservative and then somebody will call me like a lefty, like a radical leftist sometimes. And I'm like, what are you? I just think I, to me, I think all of that is just like, you're indoctrinated into your own belief system and anything outside of that you see as the enemy. And I just don't have the energy to participate in that. But I'm also, again, like I haven't, my, some of my views have changed, but my principles haven't really changed as far as like what I see as being valuable in the country, where we need to go. But with politically homeless and shifting back to Connor Wanders, I mean, a big part of that was content suppression. Like I just couldn't grow. It, it, was, it was impossible. I, I lost a thousand Instagram followers in a month wow. or six months. And the only people who would follow me were sex bots up until recently when I came out against uh, Dylan Mulvaney, Bud Lightning. And not because I give a shit about what Bud Light does with their marketing, but I just felt it was very disrespectful to women. Um, and I didn't talk about that much. But then again, I'm also not the guy that's going to be like, oh, I got a lot of attention for that. I'm going to talk about trans stuff all the time. Like this was a singular thing and I'll cover it right. here and there when it is relevant to what I feel like is important to individuals. But everything I do now and why I went back to Connor Wanders, and I was really hesitant to even do Politically Homeless and change the show title to that in the first place because I didn't want to be pigeonholed, but it was just working really well and I really enjoyed it. But when you can't grow, you can't make more money. And so I came back to this where I'm like, I just want to bring it back to what can you do in your in your day-to-day life? If there's, if there's nothing you can do about this, then it's probably just best for you to ignore it. You know what I mean? And, and live by example and, and impact your family and your community in the best way you can. And then from there, that's that's really all you can do. We get told that we can like, solve climate change with our votes. And that's just unlikely to happen. Like, you know what I'm saying? It's it, it, We get in the situation where we've been distracted. I think there's a lot of distraction tactics that are used by people that are incentivized to profit off of misery. And it's just like disengage from that reality, you know, and live in your own life. And if you can impact a few people in your life by through living by example, right? And setting a good standard and being compassionate and not hating your neighbor because they voted for somebody different than you, Right. right. Like that's something I'll get like really fired up and fight against is somebody on either side telling you that your neighbor who voted different than you is the enemy. Well, one of our disagreements, actually, and I say that you had a more principled stance on this when the former president, Donald Trump, was taken off Twitter. I remember the day and I celebrated it like I was happy about it. I thought that that was the moment like enough was enough. And you thought overall in the long game, that wasn't the right move to make. 
Could you speak more to to your principle there around, you know, free speech and the way that we approach politics, especially figures as trivial as Donald Trump? Donald Trump's an interesting character because him in himself is he's a he's a doofus. Like, I'm not a big fan of him. Like my granddad is a he voted for him, I think, one time. He doesn't really vote. He says, like, I'm not voting anymore. Like, I'm I'm 75 years old. Like, you guys I'm done. <laughs> like, oh, these people are, he's like, George W. Bush was a shit show. This is a this is madness. Donald Trump's an idiot. But he voted for him the first time around. But well, who is he going to vote for, Hillary Clinton? Like, no one looks back and goes, like, Hillary Clinton is the most unlikable candidate and a war criminal and a disgusting human being. Like, Donald Trump is also a disgusting human being. Let's not get this wrong. But we look who our choices were, right? right. And so I didn't vote that election at all. I was just so disheartened. Really? Because, yeah, I didn't. I know. I, I didn't vote at all. I was Bernie. I voted for Bernie Sanders in the primary, and then I saw what happened, and I was like, "Wow!" I, voted, I was like, "I'm out. I'm not doing this." I kind of hoped at the time Hillary won, but now in hindsight, I'm kind of glad. I'm really glad she didn't. I think it would have actually been worse. Um, in what way? At the end of the day, at the end of the day, Donald Trump in rhetoric was clownish, but didn't really do much more than a normal just like milk toast conservative. Like it just wasn't that he was COVID happened under his watch. Bernie Sanders would have been the best president to handle COVID in my opinion. And I wanted to see those two go at it. That's what America wanted was those two in a, in a general election. But with Hillary Clinton, it was like, it was clear that there was going to be more wars the way that like her husband is responsible. NAFTA is responsible for gutting the industrialization of this country, right? So there's a lot of poverty and opioid epidemics, and these things are the product of their ideology. That neoliberal ideology has caused so much, issue, so many issues. The, the neoliberal consensus and the neoconservative Reaganite kind of consensus; those two things combined together have caused so much harm and and pain mm. and suffering in this country that I just I, I actually prefer someone who comes in and just pisses everybody off. Like there's something about that, and I don't think people I think people underestimate at this point how much of a driving force that is, right? Because there we, we have is like these two camps that have complete disdain for one another, right? You have like, we're going to talk a little bit about just kind of like the trans agenda and stuff like that. Like those people are asking for, and I, this is a conservative line that I actually agree with. Those people are asking for acceptance while having complete disdain for the people's lifestyle that they're asking for acceptance from. Hmm. Let's say somebody that likes guns. Right. Those people generally, those people have complete hatred and disdain for somebody who is a pro Second Amendment advocate while asking for acceptance from them. That doesn't make any sense. I've wrestled with that, you know, being queer myself, having grown up, we kind of we both grew up in kind of fundamentalist, you know, religious circles. You in Texas, I believe, like Southern Baptist, Uh, me growing up more Baptist, Pentecostal, Bapticostal, if you put, put them together, being queer, but then also wanting acceptance from those groups and not being encouraged when they don't promote the agenda. But the agenda often shifts. I had a conversation on this show previously uh, with a great activist, and he had a post, kind of, it attacked evangelical Christians. It was like a blanket statement over all evangelical Christians. Hmm. And I like to remind people that most evangelical Christians, that's Presbyterian, that's Baptist, that's Lutheran, that's most Protestant religions. And the mistake you make when you dump everyone into that bucket, you've also put Black Baptist in there too, who are some of the most staunch to this day civil rights advocates. Mm-hmm. Uh, the pastor of the church that I, I go to here in Chicago, I guess he, he's he been more liberal in his you know way of approaching you know queer acceptance and inclusion. And I guess he received an anonymous letter and he addressed it from the pulpit on a Sunday morning. And it was heaven because they were wondering, you know, what is your stance on the queer agenda? We need to know because right now we're seeing in the news with commentators and policy, you know, the trans community, the queer community at large being targeted, if not, you know, on a real life impacting decisions you can make perspective, but at least from a rhetoric perspective. And he set the record straight that I don't need to agree with every little detail of someone's life or choices in order to say that they deserve equal protection under the law and equal respect and equal love. And I think that's the place where many of us, at least the loudest ones of us, don't stand. And that's where the conversation gets messy. And the conversation is you need to agree that children should be able to transition or, you know, you're committing violence against trans people. And I say that because I, I've wanted to have conversations and dialogues, but often I've been put in the camp of being transphobic or even being, you know, anti-trans just because I may say something that's, well, I think maybe, you know, I don't have kids, so my my opinion's a bit nuanced there, or I lack probably the knowledge to be able to say like, this is right or this is wrong. 
But then they they say that the science has already been written. And I think kind of having that domineering <laughs> point of view, they say that. They say the science is already there and you just need to agree well, it's with the science. The, the, the science? There's no such thing as the science. The, the <laughs> science doesn't exist. We actually had uh, my friend Liam DeBoer on the show um, just the other day. And he was like, it's become, we were talking about how people, just humans in general, will gravitate towards religion. And that religion may be fundamentalist Christian or Judaism or whatever it is. They'll gravitate towards a belief system. And in the vacuum of that, you end up with, and he, he articulated it really beautifully, like the science is like the book. Like that's, the, that's, that's mm. the text, right? You have in that same community, you have the impending doom, right? The apocalypse, right? With the, the um, revelation, which is climate change, right? You have your leaders in that community, like the, the Fauci's of the world, right? You have the, those are your, those are your, uh, your pastors. So you have these people that are like the, the ordained that can speak only truth and anybody who re- rails against it's like, so it's, it has all the frameworks of religion within that ideology, which is just not how science works. Science is supposed to be challenged. Right. You know, that, that, and that whole thing through COVID, like that, that brain virus got into people where it's like, if you didn't like, I'm unvaccinated from, like, from COVID. And it's like, I never, there was not a day in my life where I was going to take that thing. Like it was very obvious to me three months in that this was affecting people that weren't me. Right. So my risk was near zero. And I knew that it was pretty obvious. And now even though they're like, oh, well, the numbers are skewed. They admitted that at the time, but nobody wanted to believe it. So it's like, if you didn't have significant health issues and you weren't old, you know, and they didn't even go about it like uh, putting a bias towards vaccinating the elderly, which really the value proposition when you're 75 years old is different than somebody who's 32 right. or 25 or 16 or five years old. Right. <laughs> it gets, it gets, it got real scary. And I was like, this is just like the inability for people to see that while say while praising the science, all the same characteristics to me of a religion and a dogma. And I, I criticize religion a lot, but you I go do. after you don't you you don't want to come to church with me and it's okay. I love your church looks like a lot of fun actually. Black church, this is thing. Black churches are the shit. Like black churches, I, I see black church. It's like there's something about that, like that because I see that and my mom's like white churches are different, but it's like, like white like white women make bland ass chicken. You know what I'm saying? It's like it's the same deal. It's like the bland chicken of church. That's what it is. Like Lord, I lift your name on high. Like that bullshit. But it's like you see black churches and I'm like these people turn up and they like get, they're feeling it. You know what I mean? But yeah. I think that's. When I look at that, I think that you're you're tapping into something there that's not exclusive to Christianity, but can be found through Christianity and be th- found through like the consciousness of Christ. And you're tapping into that. You can also tap into that at Burning Man. Like that's I've I've had similar experiences at church camp and at you know at concerts. It's a, and and just also just ex- experiences where you're in kind of a shared environment, energy with people, and it brings out like this elevated level. Like I see that black churches tend to tap into that more than white churches do. And so I, I, there's something about that when I see, and that's a blanket statement, of course, but I think it's really cool. It's, it's, it's beautiful. You know, like I loved one of my favorite movies growing up, oddly enough was sister act. Every white person loves sister act. It's like the thing. It's like, Oh, that would be Goldberg. If she could have just stuck to acting like that's, I'd like Goldberg regardless. I think she cracks, she cracks me up still. I don't, I don't, I don't hate on the view. Yeah. She's funny, but that, but I think it was because like, just like everything cool in the white community came from It's like, Oh, Hey, here's a little bit of what's going on. And you guys were already living that. life. (laughs) Like, like, this is just what we do. And it's like, Yoda's figured out that you could do this. It was, yeah, but um, anyways, but yeah, the, the way that that's been that's that the, the the science and the dogma around whether there's the dogma around Christianity that I, I have a disdain for, whether it's the dogma around climate change, dogma around the trans agenda, dogma around the Second Amendment, any of this 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 dogma just really trips me out, and I like to have a very. I bear the burden of having a very, very nuanced view on several things, right? Like I can, I can actually advocate. I can sit here and have a conversation with you about abortion. And pick both sides and debate either one of them. And you would leave right. that conversation having no idea what I actually believe. Exactly. I do take pride in that. And I'll tell you what I believe if you ask. But it's like, I can take both I sides like to and blow steal on both sides. Yeah, it's like putting out the possibilities of thought. And I think that's what's missing sometimes. You know, I can speak being queer, like from the queer agenda, because you get the loudest two sides are on, you know, opposite ends of the spectrum. But there's so much happening in the middle and, and an opportunity for many people to come to a further understanding. I had a situation this past weekend where uh, this old guy just out of the blue, because someone mentioned they were from Atlanta and he was like, they're taking over. It was like, they're like, they're, it's just getting really wild down there. And I'm thinking like, is he talking about crime or like, what is he? He was talking about queers. And I'm just sitting there. I don't say anything during this conversation. I looked to one end of the table where the other guy's sitting and he was like, well, I think it's always been down there. And he was like, no, they're taking over. Like they're trying to force it on us. And I'm like, that's, 
that's an opening to really, I wouldn't say educate, but to enlighten someone with a, an opposing thought that isn't so far on the other end of the spectrum that has the opportunity to bring them in. And I think that's what overall led to, you know, queer equality when it came to marriage equality. And I think that's what will happen when it comes to being able to live and support, you know, trans people living full lives here uh, in America. But you've been able, you've been a voting man for really the more recent arc of the gay agenda, the queer agenda. What has been your perspective on the momentum and trajectory of queer liberation? Because you've been an it's, ally of the queer community. Yeah, I mean, I haven't even had a shirt. One of my uh, lesbian friends got me a shirt that says ally on it. Um, I don't want <laughs> Somebody honked me one I time. Have like, a, Thanks I have a shirt. black friend. <laughs> no, I have a lot of lesbian friends. Actually, I love lesbians. They're the best um, to me because they all we all I dress like we all dress the same. We wear like flannels and red wing boots. <laughs> also, this Denver is like I think that Denver is like the origin place of lesbians. I think they all just like grow come out of a cave here, and this is like they're like out of the mountains and just like go to the breweries. That's like just if you go to breweries, it's like forty percent lesbians. When you say cave, um, I think of the Last of Us when they have like the holes in the ground and the zombies come up. Like that's what I was thinking about when you said that. <laughs> just like they're everywhere, it's great. But I love it because it's it just cracks me up. But um, it's interesting to me because to be honest with you, and like to put it in the most simple terms, I think a lot of it's gone a little far. To me, it gets interesting where it's like. I was always in support and still always in support of like gay people having equal rights to get married, do all the things. I I think if my daughter decides she wants to be gay, she should be able to be gay with zero friction. I don't think there needs to even like, I think to the point where it's like pride becomes kind of silly or, you know what I mean? It's a good party. It's a good party. It's a great party. Maybe it should be like a month or a week, not a month, but like it's a little bit, it's a little, like people to get a little bit run down, but it's like, it gets to the point where it's like, it just is. And that's, it always has just been there. And, you have these weird organizations that find it a problem for whatever reason. But I think that that's to get to the point where it's like, it's just a thing. It's not something to even be proud of or not. Pr- just like, I'm not proud to be straight. It's just a reality. It's, yeah. yeah. It's just, it's just life. I've always had it taken that stance, but I think that you have a lot of these NGOs and these organizations and the same, this is very similar to homelessness as well, where you get gay marriage and you get to a point where everything's pretty good. was getting pretty smooth there for a while from the outside looking in and then it's like, okay, well now what's the next thing? And these people are making a quarter million dollars a year, right. (laughs) To, I don't know, to do something. And now they've done the thing. So now it's the next thing. And now we're getting to the point where like, you've got biological males competing in girl sports. And I know that I'm actually covering Brianna Joy Gray had a a trans activist on talking about this and she called it a debate, but it wasn't a debate at all. So I'm going to go in there and like talk about it where it's like, I have a daughter who's very likely to get college scholarships. So this is like a very real thing for me. If a biological male takes her scholarship, I will lose my mind. Like, it's not fair. Like my wife is in the top, like she's in the 99th percentile for female athletes. She played volleyball at USC, whatever, right? I'm in probably the 80th percentile for male athletes. I played division three college football, right? I can beat her at every single thing we ever do aside from volleyball. And that's because I didn't play. Like it's just, it's, there is a difference there. And I, I could, as a washed up 37 year old, 36 year old, old weightlifter who doesn't train anymore, could identify as a female, get my hormones on the right markers and go break every state record in the state of Colorado and probably Texas, probably the, I could, I could go to the Olympics like that, that a super heavyweight trans woman who competed for New Zealand at the Olympics was putting up numbers that I can do today. And I would be a super heavy. So literally I could be in a, with basic mediocre training. I could be an Olympian as a man. I could not qualify for nationals. So that's like going from the basic level of national competition to the highest level of world competition based on changing my gender identity. That's not okay. Right. What that's would you see fair. as the solution? I haven't formulated a strong opinion on this. Uh, I'm always just for, you know, trans folks should be able to live full, protected, you know, great living lives. But I've never gotten into the argument around sports. Like I've never put too much thought into it. If you're, not, if, the, if you're uh, not an athlete, if you didn't, like, if, if being an athlete isn't a big part of your identity, it's kind of hard to even have the discussion. I'm athletic. Don't let, don't, don't let no, this fool you. I'm athletic. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you're athletic, but like, as like, that's, that was a part of my like college life. And it was actually something I probably should have done at a higher level, but I, I also competed in strength and conditioning sports for 10 years after college. So I was a CrossFit competitor, a strongman, weightlifter, things like that. So it's just, I also understand the human endocrine system really well because of, because of that experience, right? Like I do have a pretty, I remember, I remember training females. Like I would train female CrossFit athletes 
And the biggest differentiator was upper back development hmm. because you had to do a lot of upper body pulling, right? So you think about your lats, just everything around your shoulders. And you could tell the women, you could stand behind the women at a, um, at a CrossFit regional or games event and tell who was going to win based on the musculature development of their back, right? And the reason that is, is because one, you have genetic differences. There are, and this is an argument within the trans community that's like, well, Michael Phelps had, you know, has small hips, big shoulders, and long legs, which makes him a good swimmer. He's, he's genetically gifted in that. I'm like, yeah, but he's naturally genetically gifted in that. It's not like changed himself in order to be more competitive. That's just what he was born as, right? So he was born with this, didn't acquire it by some other means. So you can look at these girls and the reason that is, and the reason that men are so much stronger in their upper body relative to females is because we have more anabolic receptors in our upper body. So our upper bodies evolved to process testosterone in a different way, to put on muscle mass in a different way. So you have a clear, distinct disadvantage to women competing in sports where there's an upper body bias. Women, you can notice, also have bigger legs than men do oftentimes, right? Like I know a lot of women, female competitors I competed with who had bigger quads than I did. It's very, it's funny, but it's like, it, that's just evolution, right? We've evolved to be that way for evolutionary um, f- fitness. So when you look at it, it's like athletes have to make sacrifices. That's mm. what athletes do. Athletes don't get to party as much. They don't get to do a lot of the things. And part of the sacrifice of being an athlete is competing with your born gender. That's just what it is. If you want to, if you want to transition to being a woman, well, that means you don't get to play college sports. Now, if you want to go the other way and transition to be, you're putting yourself at a disadvantage if you go the other direction. So it's like, well, you're probably not going to be competitive, right? Mm-hmm. And, at the, and and so think about it this I've way. I've noticed way, that, but it hasn't gone the other way. I haven't it, seen it go the other way. The which, argument, which makes I just my thought point. about that. Oh. Which makes my point. You can't, because women can't compete with men at these, there's a reason that it, like a, a high school soccer team can beat the women's national team in soccer, a boys soccer team. Like it just is, it's not we're trying to like wash away the fact that there are biological differences in men and women. That being said, if somebody wants to trans, I'm not, I'm not Jordan Peterson. I'm not thinking that transition should be illegal. Do what you want to do. My, my uh, cousin's dad is, is trans. He's, he's has been forever since way before it was cool. Right. So I don't think he had any surgeries or she had any surgeries, but, and his name was Billy. So now her name is Billy. So it was pretty, pretty straightforward. <laughs> she yeah. doesn't change much, but uh, super cool, super cool chick. And was a super cool dude. And you know what? I, I was always in support of that. I'm like, my granddad thought it was super weird, but he's old. And I was like, yeah, well, whatever. Like, that's fine. But when it comes to, you know, the girl who gets seventh and doesn't get to go to nationals because Leah Thomas beat the dog shit out of everybody, you can see that. And if, and if it was, ba- and now if it went the other way and the same thing was happening, you're like, okay, it all washes out, but it never goes the other way ever. Mm. Now, when we're talking about T-ball and stuff like that, those are usually balance between boys and girls because boys and girls that are five years old aren't that much different from one another, right? You haven't gotten testosterone yet. Your hormone panel, that doesn't really come in until you're like 11, 10, 11. And you start seeing a real difference. I used to umpire little league baseball and the difference between eight and nine year olds and 10 and 11 year olds was insane. Absolutely insane. Like you, you, like you went from being able to like these kids couldn't throw the ball past the plate to like throwing 65 mile an hour fastballs, you know, as 11 year old kids. And so I've seen a lot of this and I'm like, it just, it's just, it just is, it's a, it's a, it's a compromise you have to make, you know, and life isn't fair. And I understand that everybody needs to be treated fairly, but like you're taking away. And the way I thought about it from, and when I was thinking about this Brianna Joy Gray debate, cause she was really not, she called it a debate, but it wasn't, like I said, and I was like, okay, think about it this way. You're on deck for a scholarship to Harvard law, right? And somebody who in infancy had gotten CRISPR done and had, and, and was genetically predisposed. So had a, had made an adjustment to their body via CRISPR gene editing to make them incredibly intelligent. And they take your spot at Harvard. Is that fair? Oh, no, it's not fair. And that is the, that's an intellectual equivalent. Yeah. I can't be dishonest there, but I, you point to equality, like you see equality and equity really as a reality. Like you want it to be a reality rather than being something that needs to be recognized. And I think that's a very forward thinking and innovative perspective. And we've had conversations to the point of, for example, the Lord of the Rings, the Amazon Prime show, Rings of Power, they cast Black Elves in Middle Earth and they cast Black Dwarves in Middle Earth. And that wasn't something that was represented in the previous movies, not in The Hobbit, which is more recent in like 2013, Mm -hmm. 2014, not in Lord of the Rings, which was in the early 2000s. And representation in media for minorities right now, we're at a much higher high. I was watching a show, I forgot the name of it, 
but to see it was a cast of white people. And I was like, I haven't seen just a bunch of white people on screen in a long time. It's like friends. No, <laughs> I was like, no, my, I was like, wait, there's no black. What? I forgot what show it was, but I was watching it and there's no minorities to be seen anywhere. Last night, I'm watching The Prince of Egypt, which is a legendary epic movie that all Christian mm. kids were indoctrinated with, and it is a masterpiece. But really all of movie. the voice actors, except for Moses' wife's father, they're all voiced by white people. That's not mm. something in 2023 that we would let slide. And I wonder, you know, how do you feel about casting houses being intentional in pursuing representation, being conscious about equality rather than just letting it be a reality. Because we've gone back and forth on that. And I was like, you know, black elves are black elves. Like they're elves. They're not real. Like what should it matter? But you had a more nuanced take on it. Well, my thing with, so first off, that movie was, that show was trash. That show was, I I didn't even watch it. it I'm on episode uh, five. I I watch reviews of shows I don't watch um, because I was never a Lord of the Rings fan, really. But what I looked at was like, okay, that was written in a much different time. It was also kind of based loosely on Europe at a certain time where there wasn't a lot of diversity, right? So for me, I'm like, you can do it. Like, so let's just contrast what they did with a because you have Lord of the Rings, which happens after the events. This is a prequel, right? Right. So you're implying that that there was some kind of black genocide between the two, <laughs> which is which is odd to me. I'm like, well, there's not any here. Where were they? Like, what happened? Did they just all leave? Like, was there segregation? Like, what happened? But if you contrast that with how they did it in Game of Thrones, which I thought was really good, I loved that. I loved uh, the Black Valyrians because they came from like House of the Dragon. You yeah. saw this in Game of Thrones where when they had all the different because because Daenerys Targaryen had all these different types of people that she had kind of collected along the way. So she had the Dothraki, she had um, the the Unsullied, yeah. and the people in, in Westeros had never seen people that weren't white before. And you could tell on their faces, they were like, oh, like they were like kind of tripped out because they had never left this little region. It was just actually, if you think about the kind of the timeframes of referencing would have been reality. You know what I mean? Um, I think if you go to something like The Witcher, which had more a more diverse cast, right? That made, because it, it didn't, it, did it not? It was a little white. Oh, it was right? me, but it's also based on like <laughs> mid-century Europe. You know I mean? but also, like, like when I watch shows, I don't often go like, oh, there's so many white people here. Like it's very much like I have to take myself right. out of the story in order to do that. Like the last there's of not, us, they've done a great job. Yes. Like there, it's just not, it just feels natural. Exactly. The last of us is like a post It feels very natural in Game of in a House of the Dragon. It feels very natural. And they added that in. Like those people weren't, they described those people in the books and they're not black. And, how, and that's what makes in. the plot more interesting. Like when, cause we've had the, the conversation about the little mermaid and it being based in Denmark, like what's going on with the underwater geography. Like, is it the same? And looking at, I mean, if they made Prince Eric black, I could see that point, but Ariel being black, I think it's a fun choice, but in house of the dragon, reading the books, I've read uh, fire and blood three times. The Valerians, everyone I assume is white. So when there's the question of the birth of Rhaenyra's children, it's so much more ambiguous. So it makes this yeah. conflict kind of stupid. But then in the show, when you make her husband black, and then you also, her uncle is married to the brother's sister, and his kids look mulatto, they're mixed race, and then her kids come out looking like Tommy Jefferson, like it's definitely, it makes the conflict a little bit more intense because they're exactly. obviously not, you know, his. It was skillfully done. It was very yeah. skillfully and add, and add, I mean, it was not like you just, you have to add value by adding black actors. That's not what I was getting at. But what frustrates me with the, like, we say that like, okay, so House of the Dragon did it skillfully. I think that that's the thing is like with, it seemed like with what I understand about the game of the, or the um, uh, Lord of the Rings prequel stuff, what was it called? No, Rings of Power. Rings of Power. I was like, they lean on the diversity of the cast to distract from the, like they want validation for that instead of validation for telling a good story. They did not tell a good story. The strong female characters, and this isn't about by diversity. Like I love a good stomach, strong female character. Go watch Terminator, right? Like Sarah Connor is a badass. Go watch alien. Like these are strong yeah. female bad bitches like doing their thing. Uh, Ray from the, from the new um, Star, Star Wars. Wars movies. They're all Mary Sue's. They don't face conflict. Right. Yeah. They, they undermine them. If you look at it, even look at like a uh, black Panther, like all the white dudes in that movie are like doofuses. Yeah. It's become like where it's like, go watch a movie and see if there's any villains that aren't white men. And I'm not playing victim here, but it's like, you see this trend and it's like, Oh, is there a white guy in here? Who's like kind of sketchy. He's going to be the bad guy. It's, it becomes like, it becomes so predictable. And so when the black little mermaid and these other things, I wasn't so mad that they cast the black little mermaid, right? I'm upset that they're going to hide behind that to, sh- to, to, to try to say, if you don't like For this movie, story. that's going to suck. Yeah. You know, cause Sebastian, the crab looks dumb. 
like did the same thing with uh, the Lion King. It was terrible. You didn't like it. It felt like a National Geographic with voiceover. The reason that I didn't like it is because animals talking that look like real animals are hard to empathize with. There's a reason. And I I like that they cast like the casting is incredible. And that's what I thought they underutilized some of the actors that they brought on. It was like they brought on name actors like Alfred Woodard, even Beyonce, like and they didn't do much of anything. And right. And I, if you're going to do these live actions, you kind of have to change the characteristics of an animal because we're not meant to empathize with animals. Like there's a reason that a lion kind of looks scary. You know what I'm saying? And, and, and Simba right. didn't look that scary. Even adult Simba didn't look that scary, right? Their f- eyes are facing forward. Their eyes are bigger. So you can empathize with these cartoons more than you can empathize with a real warthog. Like a warthog doesn't have, so predator animals have eyes in the front of their face. Prey animals have eyes on the side of their head. That's because they have a wider field of vision. Prey animals need to focus. Our predator animals need to focus. So you look at any big cat, any predator animal, a mammal will have eyes facing forward, right? That's why if you ever go out with a, if you're ever around cows, like cattle, they're scared of you because they can see both your eyes. Yeah. And they know that that's a, that's, but even though a cow could run you over, no problem. Wolves, big cats, all these things have eyes in the front of their head. It's hard to empathize with something that has eyes on the side of its head. It doesn't make because you can't you 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 read so much through the eyes of something. So that's why in these shows, Pumbaa would have had eyes facing forward. Right, it didn't look like a real warthog. So it's like you had these things where it's hard to emote, and then you change the story where what they're doing with the Little Mermaid right now is they're saying, well, it's not all about her just chasing a man. It's about her standing up for herself. And I'm like, if you think that Ariel's story is about her chasing a man, she wanted to be on land before Eric was even a thing. Right, she took a giant risk to go chase and pursue something. Right. If you've taken that character and whittled it down and reduced it down to her chasing a man and being like a soft woman, then you have no right to play that character. And I think what I would like to see is like, I would like to see like a Wakanda under the water and like do some cool shit, like tell a new story in the same universe. That's what I would have been really, I would think that would have been fucking rad, you know, where it's like, and there was, that would have been really interesting to me to like, you're telling a white story with black actors. Why don't you tell, like, tell a, there's so much cool African mythology that gets underused, in my opinion. Like I've looked, we've talked 100%. about this a little bit where I'm like, yeah. like do that. That's like, there's so much, there's so much untapped potential there, but you keep just like squeezing this old IP for everything it's worth. And it just, it's not working. You know, they're doing the same thing. They, the Pinocchio was shitty. Like it was, I mean, the original Pinocchio was dark, you know, like well, I that's why I like the Guillermo del Toro. I mean, in, in what you're pointing to also speaks to like the bigger trouble that Disney is going under right now. Like they're not doing well plunging cable subscriptions, Disney Plus is in the hole. They've purchased, you know, over the last decade and a half, all of these major, you know, entertainment houses, Marvel, Star Wars, Lucasfilm, which is Star Wars, and they're creating content, but not all the content is great content. And so it's putting them in a hole rather than, you know, benefiting their bottom line. And so, of course, they brought back their former CEO to try to turn it all around. And then you also have the distracting, you know, whatever culture war, if you want to call it that, with Ron DeSantis, But I think it speaks more to the lack of good storytelling because Disney had a Pinocchio come and I tried to watch it like name actors, Tom Hanks, like, and they tried to, you know, it's a, it's a remake. Like I'm looking forward to the Wendy and Peter Pan, hoping that that's actually good. I have doubts about it, but then you have Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio. And I watched it when I was in California and the people I was with, they were like, are you sure about this? And I was like, just shush, let's just watch it. And it was the most heart wrenching, dark, like dynamic story that you would expect it to be, but they didn't hide. They didn't have to hide behind anything. They did stop motion animation. And it was just, it was amazing. And it I looks think like it, James and the giant peach. That's what it yes. reminded me. I, so I actually, I haven't seen it, but I, I, like I said, I watch reviews of movies I haven't seen. And I was like, cause it, it, when something sticks to that, and it's a Pinocchio. I'm like, eh, no. Um, <laughs> so I watched uh, this, I watched this guy called think story on YouTube. I love his stuff. And I was just like watching his videos. He did like 10 minute breakdowns and he t- did the outline of that story. And I was actually kind of bummed that I watched the, watched the breakdown because I, I was like, I would love to watch this movie. It had that kind of, I mean, even like what it says is like, um, what happens happens and then we're gone. Like that's yeah. kind of this. And it was, it was, and it doesn't turn into a real boy. He turns, he, but he's alive because he can't die again. Like this, it was so much. And he was, and he was gave dynamic. up his life to save Geppetto. And it was just, it was consequences and stakes. And it was, it was a really, it, from what I could tell from the, from the rundown was like, it was a really beautiful story. And I was like, holy shit. Like somebody came up with something that was an original take on a, on a really interesting story. And it was big name actors were in that show. Like Ewan McGregor, Tilda Swinton, Kate Blanchett, in minor roles, by the way, Tilda Swinton, yeah. Kate Blanchett. Like, 
the guy um who played uh Walder Frey in Game of Thrones, he voiced uh Geppetto. Like yeah. Insane. And what, what's the guy's name who was in Inglorious Bastards? I forget his name. I forgot. Nope. He I always plays those really dark characters and has that really cool voice. Oh, Christopher just, Waltz. Yes, Christopher Christoph Waltz. Christ, yeah. Christoph Waltz, yes. Yeah. Dude, he played the I love, um I, yeah. Love him, dude. He has such a range. I, God, he's he's one of the most impressive actors. I, I the Glorious Bastards is one of my favorite movies, and it's just wow. Like and he I does feel like, such a great job. I feel like in culture and society, like we get those originals that come and then we fall in love with them and then they become a part of like the cultural canon. But then as time moves on, we mostly want to see a repeat, or the people in charge think that we just want to see a repeat of what has passed rather than something new. The Star Wars trilogy fell into that path with The Force Awakens, The Last Jedi, which was more original than mm-hmm. The Force Awakens. And then you get The Rise of Skywalker, which falls into the same story trope that we've already seen, you know, 30, 40 years prior. And I would dare say to pivot to like presidential politics, we're in that same trap where mm-hmm. we want to see repeats of what's happened in the past. People like to ascribe like the Obama magic to people way too early in the game. Beto O'Rourke had the Obama magic. Kamala Harris had the Obama magic. They're trying to just like, yeah, they're trying to just like take on, they're, they're, they're doing an Obama impression. You know, that's what they're doing. Like Beto, I liked Beto. I, I, uh, I had moved out of Texas. I didn't, I didn't vote. I was going to vote for him, but I, I was out of state, so I couldn't do it. Wait, you liked Beto? I liked Beto at first, but then he just like, he got, he pandered too hard. It was like, dude, you don't have like, Obama was an incredible orator and just like, I didn't love what he did in office with 2000, the financial crisis and dropping a shit ton of bombs. Like I didn't really see that coming from him, but like it is what it is. Right. Like I feel like I kind of got a lot of people feel kind of betrayed by what there's a lot of Obama than Trump voters. Right. You see those, those folks were out there that wanted something from in Wisconsin, you know, Racine County went for Obama twice. Obama even visited twice. Michelle Obama visited in 2012 and then flips for Trump. And that's also Paul Ryan, same district to speak to the nuance, you know, of people showing up to vote. And that shows that people wanted something like, wanted hope and change and they did not get hope and change, you know? So they're like, well, let's make America great again. Then, you know, it's very strange and people don't look at that stuff. And it's like, it's interesting to think about that. Like we have this addiction to nostalgia because I think we see our culture is just trash. Now we have a, mm. we live in a clown world with trash culture. We don't have root. And I even think about that too. Like one thing I actually envy about really like many minority communities here is like they have an attachment to something like America is a melting pot. Right? So I, I'm an American white dude. I really don't have any culture to speak of. I have Texas culture and I really, I appreciate that. You go hunting. You go hunting. No, I do. I mean, but it's like, I don't have like, you can look at, if you want to get into that, it's like African culture you can like identify with, right? Like when I was in Oakland, I went to this, uh, there's a really cool uh, downtown, this like um, African art gallery that I would just like, yeah, I went in there like three times. I would just, I couldn't get enough of it. It was so cool. It's so beautiful. But I was like, just enamored by the beauty of the culture and how much they cared. Like there was something about that. And I was like, man, I don't really have that. Like I'm like hmm. Scandinavian and native American. I'm like all kinds of these things. And I'm just kind of, I don't have an attachment to something, but if you go look at these countries that are happy, like Finland and the other, like these Scandinavian countries are different places where they're actually attached to their culture. Like they have an old, like America's what, 250 years old. We don't have that. And it's become so consumerist and we've been eaten up by like fake capitalism we long for like the 1950s almost because it was like, at least there was something that we were like on top of the world. You know what I mean? It's like, who, it was, was really for the 1950s. I'm not talking about like the racial politics or like the actual, like restriction, of you, but yeah. like, but like America was the best at that time. Like once JFK took two to the dome, like that was it. We were done. Like, yeah, like we, an undisputed once, world power. And right now we find ourselves in a, in a cold war with China. And, yeah, and we, and it, this was like on the heels of us, like, we were doing really well financially. You could buy a house for $8,000. Right. Uh, we had, World War II was like, you know, we'd had this giant victory. We hadn't gotten it into Vietnam yet. It's like that era was like the golden era of the United States. Whereas you look at other countries and it's like, you can even, if you go to like Europe, they can attack, they still have the, they have the lingerings of the monarchy, right? It's like, it's, they have some kind of cultural, something to attach to. And we don't have that. So I feel like we're just free floating and our culture is just like TikTok and Walmart. It's like, it's, what is that? Our culture is, you know, seeing articles pop up about whether Prince Harry and Meghan Markle are going to go to the coronation of King Charles. Like I was seeing that stuff pop up on my feed, like American outlets covering that. And I'm like, are we so devoid of what's actually happening here at home that we're kind of obsessing over family drama, which actually should be left private, you know? Yeah. And it's like, it's not even say it's like, I think Trump's going to win again in 2024. And I'm like, yeah, he should be. You think so? Yeah. He's the president. I was like, he's going to be the president of clown world. Like Donald Trump should be the president of clown world. That's what, that's how I feel about it now. And I, I, and because like I said, like there's so much disdain for like the Rachel Maddow's of the world who have attacked 
so many people who do have an attachment to like whatever their culture is, especially if it's like, like the industrial Midwest, these are the different places who have just been shit on over and over again. Like they have, they they're, they're operating from a place of just like resentment, anger, frustration. And so when you get somebody in and he's running on this idea of like, I am your retribution, yeah. I'm not going to vote yeah. for him, but it's like, dude, we got to be honest about the fact that Biden doesn't like know where he is half the time. You know what I mean? Like, that's true. I mean, I'm, I'm comfortable saying that like that that's a hundred percent true. He's there though. He's working. I, I voted for Biden thinking that my, and I still defend this to this day because I get attacked for this all the time. It's like, I thought electorally Democrats love to do what'll get them reelected. That's what they generally focus on and they'll do it. Except in rhetoric. pay down my student loan debt. Yeah, that's yeah. They'll, they'll promise it to you though. Again, they're going to promise it again. Don't worry. In 2024, they will promise they're going I to I won't be again. eligible. It'll be, it's uh, fine. <laughs> I'll, I'll, uh, I'm going to, uh, I'll probably vote for Robert F. Kennedy just for fun, but um, he's running. I'm excited for him. Uh, I love that guy. Uh, I just love the Kennedys though. JFK is my favorite president. I'm like, whoa, that's like boomer here. nostalgia. I'm feeling yeah, I'm like, I'm like, well, I call myself a JFK Democrat. Well, that's like you made us. a good point when it came to like um, the neglect of the Midwest. And I thought that, you know, something that's strategic that the Democratic Party could have done is to still have the DNC convention for 2024 in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Milwaukee's mm-hmm. not a very large city. I would say it's a level down from a Denver in my point of view. Mm-hmm. Uh, but instead you bring it to Chicago, which I still think is a win. But there is a feeling like when I mentioned like the county I'm from in Wisconsin and how it voted, that there is large neglect for the individuals in those communities and what they want to see come out of their national politics. Because uh, yeah. I think locally, what I struggle with is a lot of people talk about Florida. Uh, a lot of queer activist groups have put out like, don't travel to Florida because they're anti-queer and like, don't like, or Texas is on the list because they're also against civil liberties and Tennessee. But then my, the way that I look at this, and this is me sharing my explicit point of view here, is that there are people in Tennessee, in Texas, in Florida, who have the opportunity to go out and to vote. They then have an election. They vote in these representatives, whether you vote or not. I say your your non-vote is a vote. So if you're not an active voter, you're a part of the electorate, in my opinion. So then you vote in a way that gets these individuals into office. They get in pretty much with really good, solid majorities, and then they go on executing their agenda. Then the non-voting majority, I would say, or individuals who voted on the opposition side, see them enact this policy, and then they find that it encroaches on what they would call their values or their liberties. And then they want like a huge call to action. Where I sit from the point of view is I'm not going to waste my time being outraged about something that you had the opportunity to change. If we're going to make an effort to have a constructive change, which only happens through grassroots electoral work, I can get behind that but I can't get behind calling a government illegitimate that was elected by the people. To me, that seems anti-democratic. Does that well, make sense? Thing, but, the, but, the, but then everybody, then this is the Democrats line is like, every time they don't win, it's the threat to democracy, which is like, right. so democracy is a threat to democracy. Like this, there's so many things, the like Democrats have done a really, really poor job. It's been, it's like in really, I mean, you saw that in Chicago when, uh, what Lightfoot, which RIP, you know, like that lady hey, was hey, out of her hey, mind. We like Brandon Johnson. We have, I'm, I'm rooting for him. Yeah. I mean, he seems fine. I don't, I don't know much about, I think you'd politics. like him. You'd vibe with him. Yeah, I've, I, what I've seen, I've been like, oh, that's cool. It makes sense for it makes sense for Chicago, and that's one thing. I, when I see somebody who wins an election like that, I'm like, yeah, that, that makes sense for that town, which is what I, what you want to see. It's like that's yeah, he kind of fits the vibe of that town. Like Greg Abbott, oddly enough, like fits the vibe of Texas, a lot of the places, you know. But if you even that's even like places are anti queer and anti this, like go to Houston, Dallas, Austin, like you're you not go to a be, metropolitan area. Like, do yeah, I think rural it's areas are kind of backwards, but. Whatever, you know, like, do I think it's harmful for a young Brian who's growing up somewhere and trying to figure out their identity if they're in a community that doesn't support that? Yeah, but there's a, an approach to to make that more widespread. And I don't think that, you know, calling out, you know, legislatures as anti-democratic or fascist is the way to go. Uh, yeah. And to your point about kind of the way Donald Trump governed in my political science thesis class, we went over kind of the use of federal authority by U.S. presidents and when it's gotten out of hand. And we did a marker for like the last, I think, four or five U.S. presidents kind of getting into the modern era. And you have where George Bush was all the way on the end of the spectrum, where federal overreach was at an all-time high, like use of the federal government. And Trump was like way further back on that spectrum. But that's not what people want to hear. No, that's not what people see. Here's the thing, too. This is a really, put your tinfoil hats on, everybody. So this is um, is where I'm at with this. Who benefited the most from the Trump presidency? MSNBC, CNN, major news outlets, right? The Democrats didn't have to do anything besides complain about Trump the whole time. 
That's all they did. Right. They tried to impeach him twice. Didn't work. They're doing it again now with this silly ass like Stormy Daniels thing. It's a joke. You're making you're making him stronger every time, right? He's like the, he's like the blob. Remember that movie, The Blob, where like the more you throw into it, the bigger it gets. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what he is, right? So he's now. Desantis has no chance. Desantis doesn't have the backbone to do what he what he needs to do to beat Trump. Nobody does. Nobody has the wit and the humor to go up there to like really beat his comedic timing and his personality. It, and, and he also represents again a lot of these people who have been shit on. We talked about that. But if you think about it, Democrats don't really ever want to do anything. They don't want to do anything. They want to talk about things and not do them. They've done this. I mean, student loans, great idea. They could have done that in a million different ways. They did it in the way that could be, that was the most fragile on purpose. Let's be real. So who benefits from a Donald Trump candidacy and presidency? The people MSNBC, who profit, profit off of talking about him all the time. Right. And then Democrats don't have to do anything besides complain about Trump. So you think all these indictments and stuff that aren't going to stick, you're just making this dude more and more of a beast. He's going to be stronger and stronger. He wins again. Then MSNBC's ratings go through the roof again because they're dwindling. CNN's ratings go through the roof again because now it's, you know, it's going to be Trump crisis 24 seven. And then so I think they are honestly conspiring for him to be the candidate because they one, they think they can beat him again, which they can't. They will not. It doesn't matter who it is. Who are you going to run against him? Pete Buttigieg? Is Pete Buttigieg going to beat Donald Trump? Is Kamala Harris going to beat Donald Trump? If you see the the point where he was, Hillary Clinton was, was, was giving him a hard time about the tax cuts that he, the tax breaks that he got, the loopholes. Yeah. He was like, and you won't, he goes, he goes, I'm smart. He goes, but they they, they cut the cut out there. He goes, but you won't do anything about it because all of your donors use the same tax cuts. George Soros uses the same loopholes and like starts listing off her primary donor list. And every single one of them use the same tax cuts. And he's like, so you won't do anything about these loopholes because your donors will be upset with you. And he put her in the ground, dude. And he was 100% right. So it's like, you look at these old things and it's like, there was so many, I, I attacked Donald Trump a lot in, the, in good faith. The bad faith attacks, like the, there were good people on both sides out of context bullshit. That wasn't what he said. The things that would attack him on would then be like, say, for example, this paying off Stormy Daniels thing. You know who else did that? Bill no, Clinton. Clinton. <laughs> Bill Clinton did that a bunch of times. It's like, it's one of these things where it's like, so what are you, what are we doing here? What, I mean, it wasn't a porn star, but it's the same deal. And how many presidents do you think have paid off? JFK's family paid off his wife. Well, she Hillary Clinton had a similar AIDS. instance when, you know, they pay, they outsourced that, that the steel dossier. I hate saying that because I feel like a right wing con- like commentator when I say that. But, but the steel dossier, like when they created it, yes, like they outsourced that, but they had to pay a fine. And I find that a lot of these investigations are distractions and a very interesting use of uh of taxpayer dollars, specifically in the Stormy Daniel case, uh, mm-hmm. getting 34 felonies of, you know, tax. It just, it doesn't it's sit so right thin. with me. It's so yeah. thin. It's such a, a novel pl- application of a, of a law that's really obscure and it's just not going to stick. So you're just going to make him stronger. So I think the, con- I think the quote unquote conspiracy is they either are naive enough that they, they think they can beat him and they don't think they can beat DeSantis, which I think they're probably wrong on both cases. I don't know, but, um, they also want the ratings. They also want the money and they make, right. they know, they know, and human uh, humans operate off of incentives and organizations created by humans operate off of incentives and they're incentivized for a Trump presidency. He doesn't do that much harm because he just governs like a normal, he gets, he gets railroaded by the intelligence community. Like he did. He didn't, if he would have parted Assange and Snowden, I would have voted for him. I was like, all right, if you do this, if you nut up and do this, I'll vote for you. He didn't do it. I was like, all right, well, I'm not doing it. But it's like, if, if think if Trump came out and said, oh yeah, we're also going to deschedule marijuana. Oh, so yeah. Soon. It's, he's like going to win, win every electoral like he vote. Did, like, I had to do a policy brief from the next step at that he uh, signed into law. It was actually like a pretty good comprehensive he, piece of legislation. He got my dad out of jail two years early. Exactly. And he didn't never talk about, talk about that. Yeah. He didn't never talk about it. My dad got out of jail two years early because of the next step back. He was and I'm transparent and say like, I never liked Trump since the birtherism. Like I put him in a, a bucket because of that. Like if you want to be like consistent, I put him in a bucket there. Yeah. But He's done stuff in his presidency that I can give him a nod to. Oh, yeah. I mean, my, so, my grandmother was radicalized by Glenn Beck. So I get it. The birth really? thing. Yeah. Oh, yeah, dude. It was wild. <laughs> well, we could talk literally for another hour. We honestly could. Uh, maybe we, maybe do, we will one day. We should. Uh, well, we do have to wrap. I have you asked this one last two last questions. One, what is the major political issue that you have on your docket for what you're looking to see? in 2024 that can be locally, nationally, or state level? And then, you know, what are you most looking forward to in the future? I think the biggest policy that I would like to see enacted, and we're seeing a little bit of this now, is the restrictions of the power of the executive. 
Hmm. Like they're voting on that now with the war act. Like you have to get confirmation. We've, we've been, we've, every war we've been in since uh, Bush was in office has been, has not been authorized by the Congress. Yeah. And I think that that is a, that circumvents democracy. And I'd love to see a restriction back to what this country was supposed to be. And then outside of that, which this all kind of dovetails together is like, is it, is an anti-war agenda, right? Like, I think that what we're doing in Ukraine is absurd. I think we're playing with fire and I want to see that restricted and over intense oversight. Those things all go together because again, those are unauthorized uh, uses of power in my opinion. Uh, locally, you know, I can't even say it, honestly, because it's like, it depends on the community, depends on the time. Yeah. You know, you can so say you want me, your property taxes lowered. <laughs> our, schools our, are too expensive. Our, our property tax is pretty, uh, is pretty um, reasonable. We have a pretty reasonable tax here in Colorado, 4% and then property taxes isn't crazy. So we're oh. good with that. Actually, I, honestly, I just like, I would locally as this is very, to me is like, I don't want wolves reintroduced in Colorado and I want as much public land access as humanly possible. Oh. <laughs> but those are very much that like, tracks. those are, those are elk hunter, <laughs> elk hunter yeah. <laughs> uh, wants and dreams. Awesome. Well, Connor, thank you for coming on the show. I tell people this in the intro, but you are one of the inspirations behind me jumping out on my own and starting my own show. Uh, and you've always been such an encouraging voice to me. And you're you're a principled guy, and I always value and appreciate you. Thanks, man. I appreciate this. And thanks for having me on. Good luck with all your stuff, man. All right. Thanks. Whoa, 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 whoa.